Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, Robert. Yes. I want you to do a little experiment with me. All right, let's do it. Put yourself in the shoes of a paranormal phenomenon investigator. Okay, okay. Somebody with some judgment, some authority. You're not necessarily a skeptic or a true believer, maybe somewhere between Mulder and Scully. Okay. And you... Skulder, scold me? Skulder? Skulder, exactly. Okay. You are Skulder. Okay. And you have just been caught by security guards while raiding the file cabinets of a secret evidence room chock full of alien conspiracy documentation. And before you can get a good look at all these autopsy reports and heavily redacted witness affidavits you've pulled, uh, the security guards who caught you, they lead you down the hall, this long, dark hall, to the office of a bald man with a goatee and a green paisley bow tie. Obviously a major player in the shadow government. Yes, that's what the the bow tie signifies. Uh, So Paisley Bowtie stares you down, and he says, Okay, hotshot, you think you know a lot about aliens. Well, I've got a test for you, and if you pass the test, I'll let you in on the whole conspiracy, and you can know everything. But if you fail, you're going to spend the rest of your career at a weather station in the Arctic Circle. Ooh, okay, so the stakes are pretty high here. Right. Okay. So he pushes a short stack of stapled documents across the desk towards you and gestures for you to peruse them at your leisure. And here's what he says. One of these five accounts is true. The other four are lies. Pick the right one and you pass. So you flip through the documents. Okay. They tell this first-person account of a young woman who was abducted by aliens while hiking on the Appalachian Trail. And in all five accounts, the abductee is lifted off the ground in this beam of strobing violet light and sucked into the interior of an alien spacecraft where she meets a group of aliens. Uh, they take a blood sample. They check her blood pressure. Maybe they do a cheek swab, a okay. uh, cotton swab on the inside of the mouth. Very on the level. Everything's very professional. Like yes. Uh, and then the next morning she wakes up in the forest with vague memories Now, the only difference in the five accounts is how the aliens are described physically. So in one account, they're tall, about seven to eight feet tall, beautiful humanoids with smooth skin and pure white eyes. In another one, they are short, stout humanoids, about three to four feet tall, covered in thick black body hair from head to toe with curling tusks extending from the lower jaw. Okay, so so far... We have elves and we have dwarves to choose from. Gotcha. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Then you've got eight-legged crab-like animals with a brittle exoskeleton, uh, two pairs of grasping claws, one larger pair and one smaller pair of claws, and compound eyes. Uh, The whole creature is approximately the size of a cargo van. Okay. Giant crab. Gotcha. Then you've got... Small blobs, about one meter cubed, of thick beige putty that seem to move as though guided by intelligence, and they interact with onboard machinery and communicate psychically with the abductee. Uh, Each one moves about on the spacecraft on four long stilts on the underside of the putty, and occasionally they excrete small puddles of sludge resembling muddy snow onto the floor of the cabin, and these puddles are promptly removed by Roomba-like robots that emerge from the vents whenever needed. And then in the fifth account, there are predators. Okay, like just straight up predators. Yes, from the, the, the dreadlocks, okay. the the wrist blades, the mask, predators. Okay. 
So which one is the true account? Hmm, now, this is an interesting uh, quandary to deal with because on one level, like just knowing what I, I know and what I actually believe about uh, encounters with aliens and, and any kind of paranormal experience, I would I would say I would want to pick the thing that could, that uh, that uh, that matches up with our expectations more and our 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 popular mindset concerning aliens. So in that regard, I would tend to either go with predators <laughs> or uh, or perhaps the uh, the elven creatures because it kind of matches the the grays, right? Okay, so you're saying you're more likely to see these show up in fiction. Yeah. So, so that it seems like if one were to have a paranormal experience, if one were to have a, an, an hallucinatory experience, um, your mind would would be more likely to to pick from those two buckets of alien content. However, oh, wait, hold on. So yes. wait, are you assuming the abductee made this whole thing up? Yeah, that <laughs> my my first response to this would be, all right, this this individual has had a paranormal experience yeah. that feels very real to them, but is ultimately uh a, a, but is ultimately not supernatural. It's, it ultimately is all about uh, uh their mind uh, uh making sense of some sort of uh, uh you know, abnormal experience. Sure. But so she actually just kind of like got dizzy from walking too much one day, passed out, and had yeah, a weird dream. You know, she's or she's been awake for an extended period of time. However, if I'm if I'm going to get outside of that mindset yeah. and get in the mindset of someone who's actually act actively assuming, assume that, one actually happened. Uh, yeah, assume one of these is actually legit. I would probably go with the blobs because the blob idea, as as you laid it out here, feels weird enough, unique enough, inhuman enough, and departed enough from our more mainstream ideas of what uh, alien life would consist of. So I would think that one sounds out there enough to actually be out there. You know, I wondered myself, because I, I was trying to decide after I wrote these which one is more plausible, and I also felt like the blobs, but maybe that's just because I used the deceiver's tactic of adding interesting details, mm-hmm. uh, like the stilts and the and the sludge pooping on the floor. That seem to make things more believable if you add weird little details. Yeah, you you embellished it enough to where I I got a sense that there was actually some sort of uh, you know a culture going on here. Uh, if you were to subtract those details, I wonder if I might not drift toward the crab. You know, I I love predators, but I might have to go for the crab because the crab has two things going for it. It's both weird enough and different enough from humans to mm-hmm. be sort of conceivable as uh, as outside the realm of normal standard abductee imagination mm-hmm. but it's also familiar enough that i can see biology creating that i'm not quite sure that the chemicals available in the universe would create sentient blobs maybe they would but yeah i'm not sure yeah, I know that the chemicals in the universe can create things like crabs. Yes, and and I guess my reluctance to go with the crab is that it's essentially a giant crab. That it's essentially just something very terrestrial that has just been uh, spaced up a little bit, you know. But there's one feature of the giant crab that might actually be a selling point, depending on how much credence you give to a recent paper that came out. That's sort of like the inspiration for this episode. Oh yes, which is that the crab is the size of a cargo van. Yes, uh, <laughs> and this is a paper we're going to get to in a little bit. But it actually did some statistical calculations to try to determine one particular aspect of 
what alien bodies are going to look like, and that aspect is size. Right, because obviously there are countless additional questions regarding the possibility of life elsewhere uh, in the universe. But this particular uh, study that we'll look at deals exclusively with just the size of the organism. Yeah, and well, in the numbers you would expect and what their planets look like, but the one takeaway about the alien bodies themselves is the size. Right. But I thought that was an interesting thing to address because actually in fiction we've seen a a vast sort of range of imagination in how large aliens can be expected to be. Obviously the most common are your human-sized aliens because they are there are human actors playing them. That's right. I mean that's always <laughs> the concern, right? If you're and, and, and it's understandable. If you're dealing with uh, – you, you want to get a really cool sci-fi idea out there and you want to discuss it and you want to shoot it in a way that actually uh, – uh, Comes under budget. Comes under budget. <laughs> it's far easier to just put somebody in a gorilla suit and put a microwave on their head and call it an alien, a right? A robot monster. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, – oh, what was his name? I think I have it in my notes. A Roman. Roman Extension XJ2. Yeah. Folks it, at home, if you haven't seen <laughs> Robot Monster, it's a classic. It's pretty fun. I mean, I like to think of it as, uh, um, you know, kind of like a biospace suit worn by some other organism that just happens to look like a gorilla costume with a like a TV set on its head. Oh, that's interesting. But yeah, we have countless examples of like Star Wars and Star Trek are, are particularly just loaded with humanoid, roughly human size, mm-hmm. alien species. The- Trek being the most. Um, Scandalous in its way because because we you know it's just like a ripple on the forehead yeah. makes this species and this entire you know this entire strain of evolution different from this one yeah or sometimes just give them different clothes yeah. that's enough <laughs> and then of course there is in my opinion the greatest and most scientifically plausible vision of alien life ever created which is cone heads oh yes uh, you are now are you a purist are you referring only to the original Saturday Night Live skits or the, uh, the oh film? no I'm including the okay. films yeah the film includes lots of relevant details yeah we we learn about their mating practices and so well I don't know those might have been the sketches too I haven't seen all of them <laughs> I remember they had a great stop motion creature in the the film it yeah. actually yeah they did I think it was claymation it was mm-hmm. this uh, Ray Harryhausen kind of thing I yeah. don't know who actually created it but it was pretty awesome it was yeah. a monster toward the end I can forgive just about any film if it has a cool stop motion creature in it I know? am right there with you. Yeah. Like, you you ever made it to the end of Howard the Duck oh god I was just thinking about Howard the Duck like that's the, literally the only thing that I remember about it is that at the end um the dude with the mustache turns into this awesome, like weird tentacly creature, and <laughs> and it's uh, it's glorious. The dark overlord of the universe, yeah. Isn't that what he's called? I th- yeah, I think he was. Yeah. Yeah, but then of course we've also got aliens that have been imagined to run rather to the small side, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, often, if you hear the actual abductee stories, so you go back to that scenario we mm-hmm. had at the beginning. I think most likely you're going to hear that people were abducted by the gray aliens, right? Which are typically pretty small, right? Yeah, generally what two to four feet tall in your in varying accounts. Yeah. yeah, this is this is sort of the alien mythos that has seized the popular consciousness, and so they're these short, smooth gray things with large black eyes, big heads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's since it's the the idea that's in the popular consciousness. People have these paranormal experiences, and they tend to draw from that uh, that bucket of content, if you will. Um, outside of the grays, though, uh, the average Ewok uh, stands uh, uh, about three feet tall, a little over, depending on the you know you, they rank. You have your your wickets, but then you also have those bigger uh, sort of 
chunkier monkeys. You know, I do wonder exactly how small an actually intelligent organism could run. Indeed. Uh, I mean, in our science fiction, you see uh, such uh, creatures as the, uh, the, the the virus, the flood from Doctor Who, or the thing from John Carpenter's uh, 1982 masterpiece, where every cell of the shape-shifting organism is itself an individual organism with its own uh, survival instinct. And that's how they end up discovering... Uh, uh, who has been replaced by the thing by oh, right. sticking the, the hot wire in the blood and seeing if the blood tries to escape. Yeah, yeah. They take a blood sample from each yeah. one. And if your blood tries to defend itself, that's not a good sign. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's it, if not a spacefaring species, at least a species intelligent enough to steal the uh, spacefaring technology from another species. Yeah, so it could perhaps co-opt the intelligence of a host species, if, even if it's not particularly intelligent or conscious itself. Right. Uh, but, but certainly when we look at uh, you know, terrestrial models, and we'll be coming back to this again and again, um, it's, it's hard to find any examples of a particularly small life where you can say, oh, well, there you go. That that could be a, a spacefaring species on its own. Yeah, but of course, this paper we're about to talk about in a minute doesn't say that aliens run small. It says that they run large. Mm-hmm. And we've got no shortage of large aliens. It, you could run all the way up to probably some kaiju monsters, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. The uh, Let's see. Uh, I, I was looking around, and there are a, a lot of kaiju monsters to consider. Um, How many of them are actually aliens, though? Yeah, you, because yeah, a number of them have more terrestrial origins. I, I found one in particular, 130 foot tall millenniums from Godzilla 2000, uh, uh, Millennium, which came out in 1999, and uh, and yeah, it seems like various other Toho properties in kaiju, and certainly when you get into um, like Power Rangers and whatnot, right? I mean, they're <laughs> always battling some sort of giant creature, and but doesn't I, that take a magic wand to make the monster grow? Well, yes, but if you look at the magic wand as some form of technology, <laughs> I don't know. It gets kind of complicated. I think we're pushing it the there. But, but even then, you have other examples of really huge alien life in sci-fi. Um, you know, old uh, Cthulhu stood uh, hundreds of meters tall, and he, he, of course, was an extraterrestrial creature. Yeah. What about the native inhabitants of Arrakis? Oh, yeah, the sandworms. Um, they at l- they, are, they at least had been measured uh, up to 450 meters long, but there were speculations that in the polar regions of Arrakis, they might reach 700 or even 1,000 meters. So that's uh, uh, upwards of um, 3,280 feet long. That's pretty big. I'm not sure why, but intuitively I find it more plausible that a giant land-dwelling animal would mm-hmm. be worm-like and sort of uh, horizontal rather than like a st- upright two-legged kaiju monster. Yeah, I think that yeah, the larger you get when you start uh, looking at the limits of morphology, um, like the, the human model is just going to fall apart if you just try and wave the magic wand at it, right? Yeah. And th- then, of course, you've got your aliens that are just basically huge humans. Right. Uh, the engineers of Prometheus, they're about seven feet tall. Mm-hmm. Um, there are the, oh, did you ever see Fantastic Planet? I actually haven't. Oh, yeah, 1973, wonderful animated film. And you have these these enormous blue humanoid drags uh, that stand about 39 feet tall, and they keep little human ohms as pets. So they're like these little naked humanoids that they, um, they kind of dress up in, like, weird, kind of cute, kind of sexy doll costumes <laughs> and just keep them as pets. It's, That's it's creepy. It's a fabulous <laughs> film. But, uh, but yeah, another extra large... Uh, critter there um 
There is a, a 10-foot-tall uh, species in Ian M. Banks' culture series uh, known as the Adirians, and uh, they're also a three-legged uh, species, which is interesting. I think that's interesting because, fun fact, did you know that there is no such thing as a three-legged animal anywhere on Earth? Um, Not yeah, a single outside one. Outside of the dogs, you see. but Right, well, a naturally occurring mm-hmm. three-legged animal. So there are some things that sort of act like a tripod by using back legs and balance with a tail or something, so... Uh, yeah, some uh, things like a kangaroo or something might sort of use a tail, sort of like a leg, but there's no such thing as a three-legged animal. Hmm. That's kind of a strange fact about the way life emerges on Earth. If you go millions of years back, you see certain particular body plans emerge, and one of those body plans is the four-legged body plan that informs all reptiles and mammals, but you didn't have an ancestral three-legged body plan to grow into animals that survive today. Yeah, it, the um, the sort of sta- the standard models become set in stone uh, evolutionarily. Yeah, and uh, and and yeah. So I, if you go back far enough, I feel I feel like there there is an example um, or two of like three eyes in uh, in very small creatures. Oh, really? Yeah, I think one in particular. Um, yeah, animals but, uh, with odd numbers of features. That's weird. Yeah, but it is rare. Uh, g- generally, you see the, uh, the the typical two-legged, four-legged, two eyes. Yeah. All right, so we've hinted that this paper we're going to talk about says aliens are going to be rather large. What's the deal with this actual paper? Well, in March 2015, the cosmologist Fergus Simpson of the University of Barcelona published this paper, uh, pre-published on Archive, called The Nature of Inhabited Planets and Their Inhabitants, which is a great name for a scientific paper. Yes. And so what was his reasoning? How did he come up with the idea that aliens are going to be, on balance, rather big? Well, for starters, he uh, largely employs uh, Bayesian statistics, uh, which is a, a model based on Bayes' theorem. Uh, it's a way of calculating probability of things. Yeah, like if anyone out there is familiar with uh, what Nate Silver, right? Yeah, uh, who's a uh, who's made a name for himself predicting things like presidential elections. Like he uses Bayesian logic yeah. in uh, in crunching the numbers on uh, the statistical possibilities of varying outcomes. This and that's uh, scarily good at predicting the future. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, this is the same model that uh, that Simpson employs here. So as we as we mentioned, his work concerns the statistical probabilities of inhabited planets, how many uh, aliens would be on those planets, and then the size of those uh, those aliens. What would be the the sort of standard model. And uh, in determining the number of individuals um, that would most likely live in a given civilization, he came up with 50 million or fewer individuals. While any given alien in our universe would likely be from a high-population world, in the same way that most people on Earth are going to be just statistically Chinese, uh, Indian, or American, um, very few worlds would host either a small number or an, or a large number of individuals. Right. So the idea is that if you randomly select a human from anywhere on Earth, mm-hmm. it's more likely they'll live in China or the United States, one of the most populated countries. But if you randomly select the population of a country, you're more likely to select a country that's near the median, somewhere in the middle that's, you know, like Canada or some, you know, not particularly huge, not particularly small. Yeah, it's kind of like imagine all the nations of the earth and each nation is its own planet. Yeah. Uh, some large, some small, uh, and then the larger ones have higher populations. Yeah. Okay. So he also argues that a planet supporting extraterrestrial life is likely to be smaller than earth. Yeah. Closer to the size of Mars. Yeah. And he, he assumes that about 
50% of Earth's diameter uh, is, you know, in the, the lower limit. Smaller than that, and it becomes difficult uh, for the gravity of the planet to hold on to the atmosphere and water. Right. So you see Mars is pretty much at the limit. It, it's about 50% of Earth. And Mars actually already has that problem because Mars has almost no atmosphere. Its yeah, atmosphere is like 1% of the thickness mm-hmm. of Earth's. So that's another factor to take into account. Uh, he also says that each individual alien would be more likely to live on a big planet as those worlds can clearly support more individuals. Right. Kind of, again, sounds like an overstatement of the obvious, but uh, it's an important one to, to get out there. So his basic prediction, when you boil all this down, again, to figuring out, trying to figure out you know, how many worlds are going to be um, inhabited and then how many uh, individuals are going to live in those worlds. And he says that most of these creatures are going to be big, nearly 700 pounds, 314 kilograms, the size of a terrestrial bear. Um, <laughs> the exact uh, number that he ends uh, up spouting in, in the, the piece is 692 pounds or 314 kilograms. Um uh, so we're talking half the creatures in the universe are going to weigh more than the bear, half are going to weigh less, but the bear-sized extraterrestrial is going to be the standard model. If, if, it, if outsiders from another universe peered into ours, according to this paper, they would say, hey, this is that universe where bear-sized creatures live. <laughs> well, bear-sized creatures do live, you know. Yes. Yeah, I and mean, that's the thing. It, it, it is something that matches up with uh, why, the world. Yeah, why isn't the bear the dominant species on Earth already? Well, perhaps it is, and we're just kind of being selfish. But well, uh, you know, there are a number of you know you get into arguments and uh, and just uh, discussions about why humans evolved to the point where we have uh, all of this you know this great intelligence, and then on top of that intelligence, technologies and culture, right? Right. And a lot of it comes down to. Uh, our need to use our brains to uh, to score our next meal, to use our, our our intellect, because we don't have claws, we don't have we don't have bear strength. Yeah. If we had bear strength, we'd be dumb because we wouldn't need to be smart. Yeah, I think the thing is that the bear is just uh, the yeah, the bear doesn't need to be super intelligent <laughs> because the bear can do things like like hibernate through the winter. Uh, the bear can tear things apart with its claws. It can it can stand up for itself against pretty much anything on Earth, except for the technology-assisted human. Yeah, so I thought this paper was interesting. i got to admit, I read it twice, and I still don't fully understand the statistical argument that's being made. I've read some commentary on the paper where some experts consulted said that they they agree with the math of what he's doing, uh, saying that the statistical calculation is is pretty much sound, but he might be not taking into account lots of factors that could change things dramatically, such as just physical conditions that give rise to life on planets. Mm -hmm. Things like gravity or some of just the basic facts we observe about how certain life forms make their living in different environments on Earth. And this leads into one of the criticisms we read from the SETI researcher Seth Shostak. Yeah, in particular, he was uh, was thinking about the the likelihood of of uh, of large creatures actually uh, uh, you know evolving to where they would have advanced intellects and also technology, uh, he pointed out that larger creatures are likely to reside in the water, uh, where the advent of technology just might not happen. Because uh, you're a large creature, you're gonna you have all this mass. The buoyancy of water helps you to stabilize it, right? And right. Think yeah. of a blue whale. You wouldn't have a blue whale on on land, right? And then if you are a very large animal like a blue whale, like an elephant, whatever, um, are you going to 
need to advance like humans, develop these technologies, develop this advanced intellect to win food? Probably not, because you're you're big, you're content, your your station in life is achieved. You're a, you're a um, you're, you're this blue whale just grazing through the ocean. You're an elephant pushing over anything you need to eat and just consuming it. Yeah, right? you you don't need technology if you're a filter feeder. Right. So, yeah, so you have to ask yourself this um, this organism that we're trying to imagine. Why does it need to start uh, externalizing its abilities and, and dipping into tool use and dipping into uh, more complicated systems? Yeah, and of course that could lead to the broader question of how are we characterizing intelligence? Like, is intelligence necessarily technological intelligence? For some purposes, that is what we're talking about because sometimes when people talk about encountering alien species, they're talking about the kind that would send radio signals we could detect or the kind that would visit Earth in spacecraft, in which case you're not going to be dealing with aliens that might be intelligent in some kind of strange social way but that don't build machines. Yeah, we kind of get into this this anthropomorphic bias here, uh, and almost kind of a Captain Kirk kind of bias, where it's like it's only alien life if it's like us. Um, can I kiss it? Yeah, though? can I kiss it? Can I seduce it? Right? Because it, you know, an alien visitor Earth might would look at something like a dolphin, or even something arguably like an octopus, and say, "Well, this is a highly intelligent creature." Mm-hmm. Do they? Do these either of these species? Do they build things? Do they have language? Do they have? Culture as humans think of it? Well, no. Uh, I mean, for starters, they're in the water, which, uh, to uh, Shostak's point, it's unlikely that technology is going to emerge. Right. It's hard to build an integrated circuit underwater. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, intelligence doesn't necessarily mean the advent of, of technology. Well, I think we should take what we've looked at so far and see if we can draw some broader conclusions about what alien life is actually more likely to look like. Is there anything we can actually say on this subject, or is it all just speculation? Is there anything we can base our assumptions on? Uh, you know, I'm currently reading uh, Ian M. Banks' culture novel, Accession, uh, which has a fabulous extraterrestrial creature in it called the uh, the affront an extraterrestrial species called the affront and they're spacefaring they're kind of uh, like a a gas world um, cephalopod creature but they're also really sadistic and awful in their own way so the the, the culture in this uh, novel which is a uh, like a far future post singularity um, uh, humanoid uh, culture for the most part uh, they, they spend a lot of time like trying to figure out the affront like they want to they want to Push the the affront, encourage them to be less awful, and uh, and and get along better with their neighbors instead of just constantly enslaving or wiping out other species. And so they have to ask themselves, well, well you know, why are the affront warlike? And they they look to their evolution in uh, you know advanced hunting practices where they work together as a group to 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 hunt their prey. And they say, well, if they hadn't done that. If that hadn't been a part of their evolutionary ascent, then perhaps they'd be more peaceful. But then on the other uh, end of the, uh, that argument is if they hadn't had that uh, that hunting nature and that warlike uh, uh, aspect of themselves, they might not have evolved to this level in either. So Yeah. Now, one thing I'm curious about, you said you said that they're sadistic. Mm-hmm. Did you actually mean that they're sadistic as in terms of taking pleasure in the pain of others, or is it just that they're kind of like numb to our concerns and desires? Oh, no, no. They're, they're awful. Like they're, they're, they have this big hunting spirit. They'll have these uh, dinners where they'll, they'll all be eating 
uh, a particular type of animal. And then there'll be a fighting pit in the middle of the table where that same type of animal is alive fighting each other and they're betting on it. And then they also have little miniature harpoons that they throw across the table at other dinner guests to try and snag some of their food and drag it over to their plate. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they're kind of like predators. It's- yeah, yeah, they're they're kind of like a more humorous predator because they're um, – <laughs> They strike me. They have kind of like an Oliver Reed quality to them. Like they're they're kind of like big drunken louts that also developed uh, uh, spacefaring technology and occasionally sing. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can I can definitely imagine them belting out. Well, yeah, I think that brings up an interesting point, which is that of course our evolution informs what type of creature we are, mm-hmm. and we can probably safely assume that that's going to be true no matter where you go in the universe. Like, you can go to other planets, you can probably even go to other galaxies, and while lots of local conditions might be different, there are a couple things you can depend on when looking at alien life. One of them is that the physics of the universe are going to be the same. Mm-hmm. So all, all the same basic physical laws and the presence of the same basic chemicals might be in different uh, quantities. Right. But still, the, the palette, the color palette is the same. Yeah. And then the other thing is evolution. We can probably safely assume that whatever life forms are out there, they come about and gain complexity through the process of evolution by one would have to assume by something like mutation, something that encourages change with replication, and then something like natural selection, some right. form of evolution. At least until they reach the point where they have advanced technology and then are either creating their own life or creating uh, right. mechanical life that then recreates organic life. Sure. And then, of course, there's the argument, which I probably support, that we're much more likely to encounter alien technology than we are to encounter aliens themselves. Ah. Like when we meet aliens, we're not going to meet them. We're going to meet their robot scouts. Okay, and that that lines up very much with uh, with Banks's vision of the culture. Is that uh, oh really? Yeah. You keep referencing these books. I've got to read them. They're they're pretty great. I I strongly recommend them. Anytime anybody writes into us and says, "Hey, what's some good uh, you know thought provoking and and fun sci fi?" Mm-hmm. Banks's stuff is great. Except I'm currently like two percent into Dune for the first time. So oh. I've got to finish that first. Oh yes, well that's a that's a that's that's indeed a great book. Well, I think we should look at some of the principles of Earth life and ask the question of, can we assume, based on the things we've already stated, that physics are going to be probably equivalent and life comes about through evolution, can we assume that these principles are going to be present in the aliens we observe coming from other solar systems, other planets, and maybe even other galaxies in the far future? And one of the things that I think is interesting is how many animals in nature exhibit some form of symmetry. Now, whether that's bilateral symmetry, like us, if you folded us in half, we would be roughly equivalent. Uh, then the other thing would be radial symmetry, and that's something like an apple pie, basically. It uh, extends out along the radius, and you can think about a jellyfish, like it's symmetrical looking from the top down. Like if you sawed a person in half, yeah, you could you counted the rings if you were if you will, there would be radial symmetry. Yeah, and symmetry is approximate, of course. The sides rarely match each other exactly, but they roughly match each other. And it's, in my opinion, pretty easy to see why evolution might tend toward symmetry because it's easier. I mean, it's easier to make half of a person and then just copy that half 
than it is to come up with different halves of body plans for the same individual. Yeah, I mean, one thing you have to always keep in mind with evolution is that evolution is essentially lazy. Evolution yeah. is... Uh, it's the path of least resistance. Exactly. Like, even just thinking about the brain, uh, like one of the analogies I love is the idea that, that the human brain is like a, a double scoop ice cream cone. Mm-hmm. So that we didn't, when, as our brains evolved, like just another scoop was added on top of the existing scoop. It wasn't like a complete overhaul of the system. Yeah. 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 And you can see that in the brain, actually, mm-hmm. the, the different levels, the brain stem, the cerebellum, the cerebrum, kind of like extending up towards godhood, I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to where eventually we get we get the angel brains that have the ethereal uh, particles floating above the skull. Or just the conehead brain. Yeah. Uh, the conehead brain would be a wonderful example. So observing this principle on Earth very naturally leads us to assume that Okay, if we see other aliens out there, they might be totally weird. They might have claws. They might be like crabs. They might be slimy lizard-like organisms. They might have, you know, weird, you know, 20-foot-long legs and huge pyramid heads. Mm -hmm. Who knows what they're going to look like, but almost all visions include basic bilateral symmetry. If you fold the alien in half, the sides match. But is that a safe assumption? There are animals on Earth that actually don't display external symmetry. They're, they're asymmetrical on the outside. And one of the examples would be sponges. Uh-huh. Yeah. You ever seen pictures of sponges? I mean, sponges are animals, yet they don't necessarily match when you fold them in half. They can have weird little nodules coming out on the sides so that, you know, they look more like a plant of some kind. Yeah, indeed. So if we were if we were trying to imagine a sponge-based alien species, they might not have symmetry. Yeah. Then again, sponges don't possess intelligence, mm-hmm. and I guess we don't know if it's possible for something like a sponge to possess intelligence. We're back to the question of well, well, the only creatures on Earth that have anything like intelligence are basically symmetrical. You could fold them in half. Uh, and so should we assume the same is true for the rest of the universe? Yeah, this is where we get into that interesting discussion of, on, on one hand, life on Earth is our only model. We yeah. Can, we can we only have terrestrial life uh, when it comes to trying to uh, extrapolate what life elsewhere in the universe would consist of. So we, and we have to base it on this model. And we see symmetry here. And we have to imagine it uh, that way elsewhere. We see uh, we see the importance of water in the evolution of life here. We have to assume that elsewhere, and and that's really the best course of action. On the other hand, uh, there's this little thing called the uh, Copernican principle, which states that there's nothing special or privileged about Earth or humanity, which is sort of the um, you know sort of the Fox News fair and balanced <laughs> approach to uh, cosmology, like in trying to in, when thinking about the universe. Try not to have too big of a head about the importance of Earth and the human species. Right. Of course, the Copernican principle originally comes from like astronomy and cosmology, the mm-hmm. idea that, hey, you don't necessarily have to start with the assumption that the Earth is the center of the universe. Right. But it has been extended to a much more general principle mm-hmm. beyond just saying we don't start with the assumption Earth is the center of the universe to we don't start with the assumption that whatever our position is as an observer is privileged. Yeah. It's we don't necessarily assume that we're looking from a unique vantage point. Yeah, it seems to me that the, the, the safe course of action, I think this is the one that most cosmologists tend to, to, to lean towards, is use the Earth model of what life is like when thinking about other worlds, but then also have the Copernican principle in the back of your mind. It's yeah. kind of like as you interact with people in your daily life, treat other people like you would like to be treated, 
but then adjust accordingly as new information becomes available, bearing in mind that everybody is not going to have the same tastes and preferences as you yourself. Yeah, yeah. Another way of looking at this would be calling it something like the mediocrity principle. This has been invoked in speculating about alien life before. And it's a sort of statistical argument. The idea is if you're drawing a random sample from a pool of objects Mm -hmm. and you don't have information to the contrary, the safest assumption is that the sample you select is typical or average. And in this case, the sample would be Earth. Mm-hmm. So that's our one sample. We've randomly, not by choice, but by necessity, <laughs> randomly selected Earth from the pool of possible inhabitable planets. Yeah, there's one ping pong ball in the power ball uh, right. chamber. And uh, yeah, and so we've selected this, and it's Earth. Now we're looking at it. What can we assume about its relationship to all the other balls in the in the power ball thing? Well, the safest assumption is that it's pretty normal. It's average. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this becomes... Uh, this becomes kind of heartbreaking, I guess, at times for cosmologists as we, we continue to get new information about various exoplanets and, and how few of those exoplanets uh, are really Earth-like in nature. But there's another interesting way of applying the sort of averageness principle or the, the typicalness principle toward the universe. And some people have gone a lot farther with it, <laughs> saying that basically Star Trek got it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that essentially the uh, the universe is uh, is likely filled with other humanoid species. If that, it's filled with animals if, at all. Yes, yeah. if it has anything at all, then they're likely going to be humanoids. They're going to be, I mean, it, it kind of gets into the whole territory that um, Stephen Hawking uh, dipped into talking about, well, if there are other alien species out there, they're probably awful like us, right? Yeah. Yeah. That That's the pessimistic way of pointing it. <laughs> but there could be the, the colder, more anatomical way of looking at it, which would mainly come back to this one guy whose name I kept seeing uh, when this theory came up. It's the Cambridge paleontologist Simon Conway Morris. And he has argued that aliens are likely to be a whole lot like us, so that intelligent aliens are going to be a whole lot like humans, and that aliens in general are going to be a whole lot like animals on Earth. So in a 2005 edition of the journal Astronomy and Geophysics, uh, Conway Morris begins with this interesting question. He starts by looking at this 320 million year old fossil Mm -hmm. from, you know, Carboniferous Strata in Montana. And it's some kind of weird water dwelling animal that made its living in a giant lagoon millions of years ago. And he describes it as, quote, vaguely fish-like, but neither fish nor like any other group of known animals. And so it's this strange thing that we just have nothing like it on Earth today. Mm -hmm. And he actually imagines a scenario. So 320 million years ago, this disgruntled alien bureaucrat is visiting Earth. And he's angry. He's kicking around on a beach in ancient Montana. And in frustration, he releases some of his alien pets into Earth's ecosystems (laughs) against all regulations. The alien pet fish die, become fossilized, and millions of years later, human paleontologists dig up these weird fossils. This raises some interesting questions. One of them is, if there's intelligent life all over the galaxy, how come there's no evidence that it has ever visited or colonized Earth in the past? How come we don't have obvious fossils of dead aliens in the fossil record? And then two, if we were to encounter aliens in the fossil record... How would we recognize them? Hmm. Well, I mean, one obvious point that comes up is that it's 
it's fairly difficult for a uh, creature to enter the fossil record. And yeah, particularly that's true. if a small number of uh, of, of visitors uh, happen to drop by, right? They mm-hmm. could be their fossils could be out there right now, and we might find them. We might never find them. We might <laughs> build a mall on top yeah. of uh, their location. Uh, yeah, they might have died in some arid climate that's right. not conducive to fossilization. Yeah, like, they didn't necessarily position their dead right on like what are those uh, the muddy banks that are yeah the yeah, best places. A number to of conditions have to be met for uh, for fossilization to take place, and you're far. It kind of gets down to the mediocrity principle, right? You're, yeah, you're, you're far more likely to find fossils of particular t- um, types of creatures, particular uh, populations of creatures that live in the right environment. Yeah. Your apex predator fossils <laughs> are fewer and uh, and farther between. Sure, you, we have lots more fossils of like sort of bottom-dwelling ocean animals. I mean, mm-hmm. we got tons of those, right? Because of course there were tons of them. <laughs> so Conway Morris's point is sort of that we might not be able to tell if some aliens had landed on Earth and become fossilized, because he argues that alien life is going to be strikingly similar to Earth life. Uh, one of the arguments he makes is that. All life is likely to be carbon-based, like mm-hmm. like life on Earth. He says it's basically a, quote, strong hunch <laughs> among molecular biologists that any life in the universe is going to have a chemical basis that's really similar to terrestrial life, to life on Earth. One of the things he points out is that uh, he says the fundamental operations such as primary metabolic cycles, uh, possibly photosynthesis, and maybe DNA and the replication of DNA just really don't have any chemical alternatives that we can come up with. You, you can't mimic processes like this without a system that's pretty much the same as what we already have. Uh, and then he, he sort of goes on to posit that there are general rules to evolution, he says, that they're independent of the quirks of your local ecosystem and the accidents that would arise through, you know, just random trial and error throughout history. He points out convergent evolution. Have you, if, what do you know about convergent evolution? Oh, well, this, of course, is, uh, uh, for instance, the model to say, all right, you have birds that can fly. You have bats that can fly. Yeah, these uh, both of these uh, th- these uh, lineages uh, evolved flight separately. Yeah, they didn't get it from a common flying ancestor. Right, and so yeah, that's the idea: is that organisms arrive at these very similar biological solutions through completely different routes or mm-hmm. from different starting points. Uh, two people start on opposite sides of the globe. Somehow they end up in the same place. Right. One great example of this, uh, in addition to wings, would be eyes. Mm -hmm. So not all eyes evolved from the same line. Uh, A squid has a camera eye, and you have a camera eye. But you and the squid did not both evolve from a common ancestor with a primeval camera eye. The humans and the squid do evolve from a common ancestor, but they got their eyes in different ways. Well, you know, the cephalopod was a great is a great point because it uh, reminds me of uh, some information I've read before on arguments for octopi consciousness. Yes, which is actually a reason I I don't I do not eat octopi uh, anymore. Just uh, because if you if you look at the octopus and you try to judge its consciousness based on human models, it it doesn't pass the test. Uh, the test that we have, that we, even the test that we can give, uh, you know, a primate or even a dolphin, uh, are not going to apply to the octopus. But if you if you look at the octopus brain, which has uh, um, you know evolved separately from these other models of uh, of what we think of as highly intelligent animals, uh, it itself has a very advanced brain and could in, arguably uh, could be conscious. Yeah, I've had the same thought. If you ever watch octopuses, like 
play with toys. This is a thing mm-hmm. they do. It's very strange and it's somewhat unsettling. You see a weird kind of intelligence in them that you don't quite recognize. It's like hard to empathize with it almost because it's so alien to human intelligence, yet it's so different from what we think of as like fish, you know, right. this ocean dwelling kind of dull creature. Yeah, they play, they explore, they um they um they utilize tools in some cases. But then, of course, you ask yourself when they, would, they steal things from yes, divers, they steal things from divers. Uh, but, it, but then you also have to ask, could a creature like the octopus ever evolve to the point where it would develop technology, where it would develop some sort of culture in the way that we think about it? And, it, it, and is that even a fair question? Because it, again, comes down to us taking this very anthropomorphic uh, sense of the universe and a Applying it to a creature that uh, that, that emerged uh, rather differently than, differently than we did. Yeah, totally. Uh, so Conway Morris, he, he basically has two main arguments for thinking that convergence, like convergent evolution, mm-hmm. is a universal of evolution. It's not just that we're witnessing convergence between different species on Earth made of terrestrial biological building blocks, but that we should expect to see convergence no matter what planet you're looking at. Right, but it's basically the argument is it's the basic shape of the evolution of life. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, he says one thing in this in favor of this is the pervasiveness of convergence. Uh, it's all over the natural world, you know, tons and tons of examples of it. It's at every level of resolution. So if you zoom way in to the, the tiny little gears and parts that make bodies work, you can see it there. And he points out the enzyme carbonic anhydrase, uh, he says that accelerates the hydration of carbon dioxide by more than a million times. And he, this is a quote, he says, On Earth it plays a key role in processes as disparate as photosynthesis, respiration, and biomineralization. And then, of course, you see convergence at the larger level with things like camera eyes and wings. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he also says that it's the degree of similarity in complex, highly integrated systems. So it's not just small individual components, but large systems that have different things working together still seem to converge on pretty similar working models. An example of this might be, for example, the brains of primates and corvids. You ever notice that, huh, it's kind of weird that human brains and crow brains can both come up with tool-using technologies that seem to arise by pretty similar patterns of, of evolution and adaptation, yet their brain structures are radically different. I mean, one's a bird and mm-hmm. one's a primate. Indeed. I think this is a pretty convincing argument, as long as I try to disregard any Star Trek analogies in there <laughs> with rippled foreheads. Yeah. But, yeah, if you imagine any any world, you have this, uh, this, this complex uh, system of evolution taking place, mm-hmm. varied models of life emerging, there's going to be some model of life that uh, it doesn't have these extra bells and whistles uh, anatomically to deal with um, acquiring food, protecting itself, carrying out its basic genetic mission, uh, a species that has to depend more on ingenuity um, and tool use, and it's probably going to look something like us. It's going to be Vaguely humanoid in form, at least. Yeah, that's another sort of final position he arrives at, that it's not just that our bodies are going to look similar to alien bodies, but that he believes intelligence is pretty much a, an inevitable consequence of life mm-hmm. in the universe, that all things evolve towards some kind of human-like intelligence. Right. And in fact, there's the, I mean, the further argument is that any complicated system moves towards intelligence, right? The emergence of intelligence. Right. 
Well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like what other than life? What do you mean? Um, I've, I've heard this argument uh, in terms of, uh, of of artificial systems, but uh, but even even systems. And this is where it gets, you know, kind of out there outside of biological life. That uh, that the universe itself is a complicated, is a complex uh, system, and then intelligence uh, must emerge from that system. Huh. Okay. So that if you have like a wave action acting on a bunch of different rocks, creating vortexes of current at the shoreline, eventually that somehow turns into a Greek god. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm partially convinced. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I think about Conway Morris. He's obviously a, a smart and well-respected scientist, but I think a lot of people disagree with him quite strongly on this argument he makes. One more thing I wanted to end on I thought was interesting. Earlier we mentioned the SETI researcher Seth Shostak, and in 2011 he gave an interview to Popular Science where he said some things about alien body plans that actually some of them I found pretty interesting. One of them was referring back to this thing about size that Mm -hmm. inspired this episode. He was talking about the maximum size of aliens, and he was sort of arguing against these gigantic world-sized aliens, or even probably maybe even against the sandworm. Uh But definitely an ego-living planet from Marvel would be right out. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, Because he says if you keep making an animal larger, its strength increases as a square of its size, but its weight increases as a cube of its size. So as you keep scaling up weight becomes too much for Mm -hmm. even a strong animal and according to him this is unlikely uh, to be a problem specific to Earth. This is a problem in physics and engineering that you would encounter on any planet. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's one of the reasons why you start if you start throwing a lot of science at King Kong it falls apart. I mean, literally the monkey falls apart. Right. It is not strong enough to lift its bones. (laughs) (laughs) Furthermore, I don't know if... Do you think the buildings it climbs would be strong enough to support it? You know, I've never seen anyone crunch that data. You know, we tend to focus more on the... That would be a great structural engineering project. Yeah. Are there... What what buildings out there are essentially rampage proof? (laughs) Another one. This is a direct quote. Heads are a good deal. (laughs) Yeah. So Shostak... He thinks that heads are a common feature that you'd find on alien land animals. And I think his argument is really interesting. Uh, it would sort of be the cup holder of the animal body plan, you know, mm-hmm. if, like it's a car. You can't sell a car without a cup holder. You can't, have an, you can't have an alien without a head. Yeah, I mean, this is basically the sensory array of any organism. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've actually looked into this before um, uh, in, uh, in doing various monster uh Monster of the Week, Monster Science uh, stuff for the for the website. It, you know, you, you'll see like a, a two-headed monster in fi- in fiction, or you'll see a no-headed monster in fiction, and you ask yourself, was well, this possible? Is there anything in the natural world that conforms uh, to to this model? And uh, and generally, there there isn't. You get into like in two-headed organisms. Why would it have two heads? Yeah, and that seems counterproductive. Yeah, the best you could really get into is <laughs> you don't want to debate about what your body is going to do. Right. Like the best you can get into is essentially in, you could have an organism with some of its sensory material on one stalk and other sensory uh, material on another stalk, but other than that, there's just no evolutionary reason for two heads or for a species to be conjoined by its very nature. Well, Shostak makes a good argument actually against even the sensory stalks. 
uh, because he, he says that basically as a head, we're talking about a consolidated housing unit mm-hmm. for the primary sense organs, which in our case would be things like eyes and ears, though they wouldn't have to be sensing the visible spectrum on any planet. It would be whatever organs this alien uses to take in information about its environment. Mm-hmm. And why? Why would the primary sense organs need to be on a head? Well, it might seem kind of arbitrary at first, but I, I like his reasoning. He says that heads put the input devices right next to the central processing unit for rapid response. And he categorizes this in terms of response time. Like, it's important to your survival that you be able to respond immediately to what you see. Uh, But I actually thought of another thing about this. It seems like less likely that you can have your vision impaired by damaging the pathways of information exchange. So if you imagine the dude from Pan's Labyrinth, Mm -hmm. what's that guy called who has the eyes in his hands? Oh, I don't know. It's like the... the the pale man or something like that. Yeah. yeah, that might be it. So he's, so this monster's got eyes in his palms mm-hmm. and he's walking around, looking around with his hands. On one hand, that seems kind of cool. Like you could peek around a corner with your hand, but on the other hand, you could probably blind this guy by injuring his arms. Yeah. That's not something you'd want. Yeah. Also, like, how does he cut up uh, peppers for dinner? You know, I mean, <laughs> there's just a number of uh, problems that, 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 yeah. that stem from that. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you wouldn't want this long, exposed, kind of vulnerable path of information exchange from your primary sense organs to the thing that needs to receive them. Yeah. Plus the transfer of, uh, of those uh, neural signals from, from touch, from pain, uh, four different uh, – uh, axion pathways uh, when you say stub your toe uh, it takes time for that for that signal to reach the brain now it's a very small amount of time mm-hmm. um, and it varies depending on the type of sense data but but there there is a a, a delay yeah and uh, in the evolutionary scheme of things um, you know the body is going to again it's going to be lazy it's going to go with the path of least resistance yeah so it's easier just to 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 cut down that uh, that delay time as much as possible. Yeah, I think he makes that point pretty convincingly. Uh, the the other thing he says, and I think this is interesting too, despite the fact that he's very pro-head, he characterizes the number of limbs we have as pretty much happenstance of evolution. Like, that's just a fluke. Uh-huh. Uh, we have four limbs because we evolved from four-lobed fish, but we could have had any other number of limbs. Uh, though somehow, I don't know, four limbs seems economically prime to me. (laughs) Like, if you have an animal with less than four limbs, it it seems like you couldn't evolve an intelligent animal with two limbs because they wouldn't have tool-manipulating, you know, like, grabby-grabby things, whatever those be. Well, it it instantly makes me think, though, about giraffes and elephants um, because, Hmm. of course, the elephant uh, has a a, a highly tactile uh, trunk uh, and then the the giraffe has a prehensile uh, tongue. Uh, so I could I could imagine alien species who say only have two legs and they walk on them, but then when it comes to uh, using their computers or what have you, they they rely on their trunk, they rely on their uh, their their giraffe like tongue. In fact, uh, in one of the culture books, Ian M. Banks has a <laughs> an elephant type creature that has two trunks, if I remember correctly, and those are its primary um, manipulation uh, uh, limbs. Man, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, it just highlights actually how poor our imagination is. Because I was thinking, yeah, 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 you, you need hands. 
But you could, I don't know, you could have a tail, and then you could have a tail that over time grew a fork in it, and it had prehensile forks, mm-hmm. and then you could basically have tentacles on land. Well, let's not count out earlobes, you know? We take them for granted, <laughs> but there could be a species out there on a far distant alien world, and those are its primary, uh, you know, tactile uh, uh, instruments. I have a question. Do you think it's really all that advantageous to have, like, four arms Hmm. Like, would, would Goro have a real advantage <laughs> as an organism outside of the sacred rights of Mortal Kombat? Hmm. Yeah, why would Goro, uh, what, what was he, a Shokan? Is that his species? I don't recall. Um, yeah, why, why has this model evolved? Um, well, hmm. Yeah, he certainly has an advantage against humanoids. Uh, and maybe he has, if I, if I remember correctly, his, uh, his species sort of ancestral enemy is essentially a centaur, right? A big, uh. Oh, is uh, that right? Yeah, the one in the, uh, the, the third Mortal Kombat, uh, film, uh, Motaro. Okay, so if they're fighting, there was a third film? No, no. Uh, well, M- M- Motaro might be in the films too, but in the third game, Motaro oh, has like okay. the Goro role, uh, of being the, like the sub-boss. So yes, I was about to leave work and go watch the third Mortal Kombat film. <laughs> I think he shows up in it. Uh, you would probably not be surprised. But so maybe there is an evolutionary advantage to having a second pair of arms if you're having to grapple uh, with, uh, yeah, a, 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 another species that has six limbs. Yeah, a pair a of large four limbs. Vertebrate six limb creature. So yeah, okay. Maybe that's ultimately the model of life. Uh, on the, uh, the, 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 the Goro homeworld. You know, I have to come down with one sad prediction of my own, which okay. is that if we encounter alien species, I don't think they will biologically emit rays. <laughs> this is a thing that's often imagined, right? It, right? I can see them having laser guns, but I don't think from their bodies they will emit rays. Hmm. It just seems like the energy requirements are implausible. Yeah, that's probably a, a safe bet. You're probably not going to be vaporized by their... Uh their heat vision right you see them so kryptonians are out yeah and plus if a creature has like a natural heat vision ability again they why are they why are they developing the kind of advanced intellect that would enable them to travel right. across they don't the need galaxy. tools yeah they're just sitting there <laughs> blasting whatever they want to eat and uh if anything messes with them they, they blast uh the predator so no problem and no reason to venture out into the void well, I always enjoy talking about aliens, but this has been particularly fun, Robert. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things that, uh, like, oftentimes I'll find myself just sort of thinking at night, and I tend to more and more and more pessimistic about the idea of, of intelligent life in a sci-fi sense existing out there. But I'll, I'll often think, well, there's probably somewhere just so far away there's an ocean that I can scarcely imagine, and there's some sort of, like, slug-like creature just doing its very basic thing and it's it's incapable of knowing me incapable of imagining me but it's out there somewhere well not to open a whole other can of sandworms but there are i mean there there are whole environments we haven't even really discussed in this i mean we're talking about sort of like surface dwelling creatures that mm-hmm. m- might be in the water or they might be walking around on some kind of hard, rocky surface of a planet. Uh, there's also the idea that's pretty common is that, well, what if gas planets could be inhabited by oh, yeah. basically floating or flying aerostatic types of creatures that uh, that move up and down in a thick, dense, fluid-like atmosphere of gas in a gas planet? Yeah, essentially Jovian jellyfish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I can see something like that too, though. With those, I also don't know if you know would technology evolve. Would would something like that create tools if they don't have 
uh, hard, rocky materials to make tools out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what would their technology consist of? Perhaps it would be entirely organic or... Yeah, it just it just blows the mind to try and think about it. But that's why we keep coming back around to it. That's why we we, we keep uh, envisioning all these different fantastic aliens. Uh, you know, essentially, giant and small aliens are not any different than the the giants and dwarves that inhabit our mythologies and folklores. But uh, as we look into the future with them, we take we take more and more of our scientific uh, quandaries and apply them to the uh, creation. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Uh, Spacefaring bears. Uh, considerations uh, uh, on the size of aliens and the populations of, uh, of aliens elsewhere uh, in the universe. As always, if you want uh, more information on this episode, uh, if you want more episodes, if you want blog posts, uh, videos, links out to our social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership, and that's where you'll find all of it. And the landing page for this episode will include some links out to the materials we discussed here. And if you've ever been abducted by an alien, see an alien or just have any relevant thoughts about what aliens might look like, how big their bodies are, what their brains are like, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com and, and tell us all of your crazy fantasies. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 